Well, good morning, church. On this uh, Lord's Day, let's once again go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you that we can sing because of the reality of Christ. It is well with our soul. We can sing because you are good and you are king. It is well with our soul. And so we do that this morning. We ask, Lord, that you would give us uh, hearts to worship. We uh, pray especially on this weekend, for our country. We thank you for allowing us to live in a land of opportunity and freedom, a land where there is freedom of worship, freedom of speech that we just take for granted that the vast majority of the world does not experience. We thank you for men and women who have paid the ultimate sacrifice. We think of the thousands and thousands and hundreds of thousands of homes that had to bury a spouse and children raised without a dad in most cases in the aftermath and during World War II and Korea and Vietnam and Desert Storm and all these things. We just thank you, Lord, that men and women have lived with courage and dignity. And we rejoice in that. We have received that legacy. And we pray now that you would cause us to prayer, to be prayerful people for our country, that we would pray for our leaders, that they would govern well, that we would be able to worship with freedom and with joy and spontaneity as the Scripture pray, commands us to pray. So we do that. Come Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, church, there's a little paradigm about the Christian faith that's got four points. The first point is creation. God made the heavens and the earth. The second point to consider is the issue of the fall of man. All men and women are born in sin. We are sinners, so creation of fall. And then redemption. In the fullness of time, God became a man. We just celebrated the redemption that is ours in Christ by taking the Lord's Supper. And then the last is restoration. As we walk in the way of the Lord and as we walk under the power of the Spirit and as we walk under the authority of Scripture, God restores us and changes us, the Bible says, from glory to glory to be like Jesus. It's an amazing concept, the restoration process. We had a wonderful graduation this past Friday at Palmetto Christian Academy, our school, and it was just a wonderful ceremony. And our headmaster, J.D. Zubia, wrote, uh, read a quote from a professor at Southwestern Seminary. I'm just going to read it to you. It's two, par three paragraphs. He says, our ability to be disappointed shows that we carry expectations of a world better than the one we currently live in. We live in a desert, but we imagine a garden. Reality constantly fails to match the Eden we love to inhabit in our minds. Our disappointments show that our expectations line up with what God says about reality, that the world is broken, but it shouldn't be, and that one day it won't be any longer. But the grief of realizing that the world is broken can be a platform to worship the God who even now is preparing an unbroken world for us. It is a platform of hope. For hope is the anticipation that reality will give way to a greater joy and greater provision, greater accomplishment, and greater peace. And that is found 
in Christ. And so you know, how does the, the restoration process happen? And here's the answer. The restoration happens as I confess my sin, turn from it, and run to the reality of Christ, and I treasure Jesus. In 1 John, the New Testament, there's these statements given that seem almost to be contradictory. He says in chapter 1, verse 5, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. And then he says this, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. New paragraph. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, so the, the writer says here that, that if, if we say that we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness of unbelief and unconfessed sin and unforsaken sin, we lie. Conversely, he says, if, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and we lie. So, so what do we do? We run to the cross. We confess our sins. See, restoration happens as in my brokenness, I confess and forsake my sin continuously, and I treasure Jesus by running to the cross. And, and, and so today we're dealing with Psalm 51 again, where David has been involved in Adultery, really mass murder, the murder of several people, deceit, lies, duplicitous behavior. At the very height of his power and manliness and ability to bless others, he's walked away from the things of the Lord. And so, so David cries with great pain after his sin has been exposed. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out all of my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly of my iniquity. Cleanse me of my sin. It's just a, a cry, God, God, have mercy on me. God, forgive me. And, and, and then he says, I know, and it says in verse six, you, you, you delight in truth in the inner being. You teach me wisdom in the inner heart. And his hope is based upon verse eight, which says this, it says, or seven, it says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. And that is a statement that points to the reality of Christ because hyssop was a branch that you would dip in the blood in the Old Testament sacrificial system and you sprinkle, for example, on lepers and say, you've been cleansed, you've been cleansed. Hyssop was the branch that the children of Israel dipped in the blood of the lamb on the night of the final plague when the firstborn of Egypt was killed and they put on the sides and the tops of the door and the angel of death passed over. So David is saying, my hope for forgiveness is based upon the reality of the sacrificial system that prefigures the coming of the Lamb of God, Jesus, who would take away the sin of the world. So, so we, we, we see this. And, and so the, the church has, 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 in 1950, there's a man named Reinhold Niebuhr that said this, this is 1950, about the church in America. He says, in the church in America today, a God without wrath is judging a, a people without sin and bringing them into a kingdom without judgment, 
through the ministry of a Christ without a cross. And what he says, if you don't get the sinfulness of man, if you don't understand that we are separated from a holy God by our sin, then the work of the cross doesn't make any sense to you. But we read this and we see the glory of the cross imprinted on David's hope. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be whiter than snow. And so he gives these, these petitions to God. Last week we dealt with the first one. That two parts. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. He says, Lord, you created me. He says, it's, it's, like, it's like I'm a piece of marble and you're the master sculptor. Or I'm a lump of clay and you have to fashion me as a potter on the potter's wheel. But, but Lord, you've got to do it. You've got to create in me a clean heart of God. Lord, you've got to do it. If you don't do it, I, I can't do it. I plead to you for power and the ability to change and be the person you've called me to be. I gave you the quote from Augustine last week, one of the most famous quotes in church history. Give what you command and then command what you will. In other words, Lord, you give the power to do and then you command me to do it. So he says, you created me a, a clean heart, O oh God. You created me, some of us, a, 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 a non-bitter heart, an unangry heart, a, a forgiving heart, a heart that's not full of lethargy and, and cynicism. But Lord, do something in me. And then he says, and, and renew in me a right spirit. Or, or do it again. Renew in me a right spirit means means an unwavering spirit. And see, I believe David's sitting on the throne at the height of his power, at the height of his manliness, knowing that he's walked away from the things of God and is breaking his spirit, is crushing his heart. David is thinking, Lord, I remember when I had an unwavering spirit as a 16-year-old kid, and I stood before a mountain of a man named Goliath, and I threw a stone and hit him in the forehead, but I just trusted you. Lord, I remember sitting on a hillside one day and writing a poem that we know as the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down by, 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 by in green, green pastures and, and streams of plenty. He restores my soul. He says, I used to be there, but I am not. So renew a right spirit. Some of us today are, you know, the Christian life is this. And, and some of us are doing well. Some of us are not doing well. Some of us are doing really, really bad. And so our prayer is this, Lord, I remember what it used to be like. Please renew within me this unwavering spirit that trusts in you. And then he says this, and we'll deal with this statement this morning. Cast me not away from your presence. And take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of your salvation. Cast me not away from your presence. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. So as, as we study this text this morning, he says, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Here's my thesis. As believers in Jesus, this side of the cross and the resurrection and the poured out Holy Spirit at Pentecost, we do not pray, take not your Holy Spirit from me. As a believer in Jesus, if you trust in Christ, you receive the Holy Spirit. You've been baptized in the Holy Spirit if you've trusted Christ. You've been sealed with the Spirit of promise, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. You, you receive the seal of the Spirit, which says that you belong to God. You don't take away a seal. You do not lose your salvation. You don't forfeit the Holy Spirit, period. 
One of the marquee statements in the Bible is in John chapter 7, where Jesus says, on the last day of the feast, he stood and cried out, saying, if any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And from his innermost being shall flow streams of living water. Then verse 39 says this, by this he spoke of the Spirit who had not yet been given. Now this he said about the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified. You see, the Holy Spirit was poured out upon all of God's people at Pentecost. Christ's death upon the cross, his resurrection achieve for us our eternal salvation and the gift of the Holy Spirit. So, so I'm going to just compare and contrast to help us understand the text. Three quick points. Number one, in the Old Testament, God dwelt among his people, but rarely in his people. God dwelt among his people, among the professing People of Israel who loved the reality of the coming Messiah King, God dwelt among him, but not universally in them. For example, Exodus 25, verse 8 says this, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. See, the tabernacle in the wilderness, the temple in the Solomon built, represented the abiding presence and power of God. You've got to get that to really understand some of the favorite Psalms that we have. Two of my favorite Psalms. Psalm 27, verse 4, says this regarding beholding the goodness of God. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all my days to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. In other words, he says, I, I want to be in the temple to experience seeing the beauty and experiencing the power of God because God, my sin is dealt with at the temple in the sacrificial system and God's presence is manifest in the temple. Huge. Psalm 84, another this is my, one of my favorite Psalms. Psalm 84 says, talks about the mercy of God. It says this, how lovely is your dwelling place, or Lord, oh Lord of hosts, the temple is lovely. My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. Verse four, blessed are those who dwell in your house, your temple, ever singing your praise. Verse 10, for a day in your courts. The temple is better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God, the temple, than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. He bestows favor and honor. But he says, I, I want to be in the temple to experience the beauty and to see the power of God manifest. So, so that's it. The promise of the temple being the place where sin is dealt with and where God's power dwells is fulfilled in the person of Christ. So in John chapter 4, Jesus is having a dialogue with a woman from Samaria who's a woman who's immoral, and Jesus is offering her the gift of life, and he says this to her. Oh, she says, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our father, she says, worshiped on this mountain. But, we, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where the people ought to worship, where the temple is. 
Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, but we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. In other words, He says, there's a new day coming. We will worship here or in Jerusalem, which is the proper place for worship, because I am fulfilling the temple sacrificial system, and God's Holy Spirit will be poured out upon all people. So, it's just amazing. God's Spirit now abides in us, among us, and in us. Just for example, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 talks about God's Spirit dwelling in us. Verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? whom you have from God. You were not your own. You were bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body. Now, I read that. You've heard that. If you've been a Christian very long, you've heard that. But it's, it's an absolutely mind-boggling, bowl-you-over statement. The Holy Spirit of God lives in His people. Individually. Pentecost. The Holy Spirit is poured out upon all people from all types of that part of the world. All, all people. We have received the Holy Spirit, if you've trusted in Christ. New City Catechism, question 36, says this. What do you believe about the Holy Spirit? Answer is, we believe that He is God, co-eternal with the Father and the Son, and that God grants Him irrevocably to all who believe. Irrevocably means without ever taking away. We receive the Holy Spirit. It, it, it's, it, it's amazing. You can't lose it. Number two, Point two, in the Old Testament, God's Spirit came upon people periodically for a specific work or calling compared to today when God's Spirit is freely given to all believers. In the Old Testament, for example, there's a man named Baziel. Baziel, let me read what he says. It's in Exodus 31. Uh, it says this, I have called by name Baziel, the son of Uri, from the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs to work in gold and silver and bronze and the cutting of stones for the tabernacle. So God came upon this man and heightened his giftedness to do a work of ministry. When it came to Moses, for example, in Numbers chapter 11. It talks about uh, Moses' calling for a season or the Spirit working in his life. And it talks about that the Spirit was given to him for leadership. This is Numbers 11, verse 17. Listen. And I will come down and talk with you there, and I will take some of the Spirit that is on you, Moses, and I'll put it on them, the elders, and they shall bear the burden of my people with you so that you may not bear it by yourself alone. 
come down, take some of the spirit on you and put it on the elders. And then this is what happened. Same chapter, verse 25. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him, Moses, and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not continue doing it. So they, they spoke with power for a season, but it didn't keep on going. And then Moses says this. He says, he says, Lord, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on all of them. So Moses says, I just wish that all the people of Israel could be given the Holy Spirit. That's fulfilled for us in Pentecost. Number three, in the Old Testament, there was an anticipation of the coming of the Spirit, Jeremiah 31. In the New Testament, there is fulfillment. Now, so I look at this, and I look at Psalm 51, and I say, how do we build a bridge between take not your Holy Spirit from me to today? And here's my answer. We should never pray, Lord, don't take your Holy Spirit from me, because we have the Holy Spirit forever. But we should pray, New Testament, Lord, may I not so grieve the Holy Spirit that I forfeit a good portion of my comfort, joy, and peace. We don't lose the Spirit, but we can lose the empowering presence and grace and anointing of joy and peace in our lives. Our prayer to, for each other, our greeting should be, don't grieve the Spirit of God. Now, in Ephesians, there's a passage that's in the worship guide, and, and it talks about this. Let me just read a part of Ephesians 4. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are all members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting Speech come from your mouths, but only what is good for building others up, as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you have been sealed for the day of redemption. Then he says, let all bitterness and wrath and clamor and rage and malice be put far from you. So I'm going I'm to deal with this passage just in a very quick fashion. Because I think that's the bridge between, between Psalm 51 and the New Testament. But I want to start off by saying this. Please, please, please hear me. So you hear this passage and, and you start, you get involved in self-condemnation and this and that. And that's, understand that the, the, the foundation of who you are is the reality of Jesus and his death on the cross for your sins. Period. We're saved by grace alone as God works in our hearts to exercise faith in Christ alone, we bring nothing to it. So understand that. There's nothing you add. It's the foundation. But out of reverence for Jesus, because we want to taste the fullness of God, we want to walk in obedience. It doesn't add to our salvation. It adds to our joy. 
is it doesn't add to our standing, it adds to our peace. It doesn't add to our position in Christ, but it adds to our, enjoy, our, our, our privileges before him. It's, it's a huge concept. So a guy named John Wesley died in 1791, started Methodism, wonderful use of God. John Wesley, for years, struggled with the gospel of grace. He had trusted Christ, but he always said, you know, I, I've got to add something to it. I've got to do something. I've got to do something. And, and so finally, Wesley met a group of people called the Moravians, and, and they mentored him and loved him and really taught him the gospel of grace. And so he's sitting in a room one night after being a failed missionary in Georgia, and he comes home and he says, uh, my heart was strangely warmed as I understood that Christ and Christ alone basically was the foundation for my salvation. Strangely warmed. So I was just built up. But he still struggled with it. And I was recently reading the journals of John Wesley. He was a copious journal taker. I just was reading through it, and I just was rejoicing in some of the things that were said. So, so he, he, he's being mentored by this guy named Peter Bowler. Thank God for Peter Bowler, who just continued to, to, to teach Wesley the gospel of grace day after day after day. And one day, Wesley preaches, and, and he, he, he just... He talks about the gospel with any kind of ears and saying, you've got to do, do, do. And Peter Bowler pulled him aside and says, you got there, but you didn't get there. It's all about grace. And then he said this, as John, John Wesley records, he says, he said to me, my brother, my brother, that philosophy of yours must be purged away. It's got to be purged away. You've got to realize is faith alone through the work of Christ alone. There's nothing you can do. And later Wesley is struggling with some issues of concern and doubt and fears. And he, again, confides in a Moravian. I won't try to pronounce his last name. But the Moravian says to him this, he says, you must flee from them and take shelter in the wounds of Jesus. That's the gospel. He says, how do you conquer sin? Not primarily through an accountability partner or a self-help group. They're fine. You primarily conquer sin by fleeing to the greatness and satisfaction that's found in Christ. You taste and you see that he's good and it's a superior satisfaction. So you know, that's what you, you freshly, you take a fresh run, a new run to, to the wounds that are found in Jesus. Last night I was at a wedding and, you know, I go to a wedding and they have a, a nice meal, and they often ask the pastor to pray, and it's always a privilege. And so they have forewarned me, you're going to be asked to pray. And I kind of laughed. You don't have to forewarn me. I'm going to pray. I can, I can do a prayer, man. I can, I can roll one out pretty quickly. So anyway, so uh, the, the, the father bride gives a wonderful toast, and then he says, I'm going to ask Pastor Brown to pray. I came up. And as I was walking up, it's kind of weird. As I was walking up, a verse hit my mind. Romans 14, verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but righteousness, joy, righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's not a good prayer to pray before you eat, you know. And really, Romans 14 is, is not about eating and drinking. It's about in the church, there were people who were vegetarians. And there were people who were meat eaters. And they were having conflict. And Paul says, you know, Really, guys, it's not about being a vegetarian or eating meat or having fast days or feast days. It's all about Jesus. It's not a matter of eating and drinking. It's about righteousness, which is right living, and then 
peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And so, so I look at this passage and I say, you know, John Calvin, there's a quote from Calvin that you'll see on the screen, but, but there, it's in the worship guide. But Calvin says, regarding grieving the Spirit, he says, endeavor that the Holy Spirit may dwell cheerfully with you as in a pleasant and joyful dwelling and give him no occasion for grief. So I'm going to just, in the next few minutes, I'm going to go through Ephesians 4. And I'm going to suggest to you that when we live in this fashion, what we're doing is crying out, come Holy Spirit. So in Ephesians 4, it says, it starts off by, by talking about you did not learn Christ in this way. You learn Christ by going to the gospel of grace. And then he says, therefore, number one, having put away falsehood, let us speak the truth to his neighbor. So, so if I speak the truth, if I live by the truth and I speak the truth and I say the truth, sometimes when it's hard, I am crying out, come Holy Spirit. If I don't speak the truth, if I remain silent when I should speak, if I go along with the crowd, if I go along with the spirit of the age, I am grieving the Holy Spirit. Number two, he says, you do this understanding that we are members of one another. So point number two, if I give myself in the local church to relationships and I pursue godly relationships, I am crying out, come Holy Spirit. If I am not involved with people, if I pull away from people, if I am someone who is here and I'm really crying out, I don't need the power of the Holy Spirit. Are you involved in the local body of Christ? Are you involved in relationships? Th thirdly, if, if, he says, if anger defines your life, you are grieving the Holy Spirit. He says, he says, be angry and do not sin. There's a time for anger. But he says, don't let anger reside in your spirit because if you do, you give the devil a foothold. There's some people you know whose operative emotion is anger. And they're grieving the Holy Spirit. So you, 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 you confess, renounce, forsake it, and run to Jesus. Number four, he says, if you've been a thief, you should steal no longer. And we get that one, but we don't stop there. He says, and work diligently, he says, with your hands so that you can help those who are in need. So, so if, if I am forsaking sin, theft, and I am working and I give to people in need, I am crying out, come Holy Spirit. It's very practical. If I withhold what is justly to be given to the Lord, I am grieving the Spirit. If I live only for material things and the next widget and wisdom or next toy, and I don't give to the things, I'm grieving the Spirit of God. It's very clear. He says, he says we should labor, labor, labor to have helpful speech rather than harmful, corrupting speech. Speak with gracious wisdom. Colossians 4, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned as it were with salt. Now listen to me. I read, I'm reading a book this week and it said this, that 90% of all news reports are negative. Now, I think that may be low. I think it's probably higher than that. I mean, it's just negative. I don't watch news. I read a newspaper, and, but it's just negative. 
And so you have to labor. You have to labor to be positive, gracious, speaking people. You just have to labor. You have to, you have to think Scripture. You have to be thankful. You have to labor to do that. You've got to. If you just float along, you're going to be negative and sour and cynical and uncaring and just griping like everybody else. Don't do it. Represent Jesus. Ephesians chapter 5 says this. He says, don't let immorality be named among you as is fitting among God's people. Verse 4, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are all out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. Let me ask you, are you known as a thankful person? Do you say thank you a lot? When I go to Chick-fil-A, I'm pulling through. I put in my order. And before they can say it, I say, man, it's my pleasure to be here. And they go, darn, you beat us to the punch. You know, I said, I said listen, beat people to the punch. So my parents, my parents were wonderful. My dad turned 96 two weeks ago. My mom's 91. They're in independent living and retirement home. And I call them every day. And they're just so kind. And uh, you know, when, when you call people in retirement village or 96 or 91, every conversation is kind of sort of like Groundhog Day. There's not a lot of new things happening. I mean, they go to bingo twice a week. They, they go to Bible study twice a week. Uh, they work out twice a week. They have a physical fitness class. And I'm going to go there one day during the physical fitness class, and I'm going to go because I think I will be the star of the class. So anyway, so I, I called mom the other night. It's coming up. It's Tuesday night. Coming home from a meeting. And, you know, I always ask him, how's the weather? Why'd you eat? So she, she gets on the phone. I said, Mom, how was supper? Oh, it was so good. It was so good. What'd you have? Fish sticks, I think. And I go, you don't know if it's fish sticks? Well, I thought they kind of taste like fish sticks, but it was really good. And I thought, you win the thankful award. If you can be thankful for something that kind of sort of maybe tastes like fish sticks, you get it. No, really. Now, if you ever go to Hall's Chop House, go downtown, and they give you, oh, I don't want a steak. Do you have fish sticks? You never do that. My mom gets the award. I, was, I want to do that. I want to be thankful. Thank you. Are you known as a thankful person? And then it says here, it says that, 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 that we got to get rid of a bitter, resentful, harsh spirit. Don't let bitterness define you. You just become bitter. It's, let me tell you something. As you get old, it's easy to be bitter. You hurt. You see brokenness around you. You get disappointed. You just get bitter. Don't go there. Run to the cross. It says, it says get rid of wrath, which is settled indignation. Get rid of anger outburst. Anger and outburst. Get rid of clamoring. Clamoring means you just scream. These things were in the, the church. Paul says, some of you are clamorers. You scream in anger. And the neighbors hear it. All the pagans around you hear you screaming. Like, don't do it. It says, don't slander each other, which means to be disrespectful to people. Instead of believing the best and giving them a good report and giving them a pass occasionally, you just <laughs> browbeat them. And he says, and then over all these things, just get rid of malice. Malice means overall anger. Even the Greek word for malice is kakeia. It's just an ugly sounding word, kakeia. So you see, are you calling come Holy Spirit? 
Or are you grieving the Holy Spirit? There are times every week, I think, when I am grieving the Spirit. That's why you repent and you run to the cross. Repentance should mark our days. There are people around us who desperately need to hear the gospel of grace. They're going to eternal judgment. And if we're so consumed with our sin and we're not fleeing from it, not dealing with it and letting it mark our days and pull us down and limit our joy and limit our peace and limit our comfort and limit our ability to speak, then, then, then we're not the people we're called to be. I, I, I want to get rid of my sin, to, to flee from it, get rid of it, run, 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 go to the cross so, so I can experience the joy and the peace and the comfort that God wants to pour into my life. I, I think our greeting... To each other as we leave is, hey, grieve not the Spirit of God. Be dead earnest about this stuff. Grieve not the Spirit of God. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that our gaze would be on the reality of Christ. We think of this man named David who is a man at the height of his powers who called out, Created me a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Lord, we, because of the glory of the cross, we do never cry out, take not your Holy Spirit. But we do cry out, do not let us grieve the Holy Spirit. I pray for those among us today who need to really be deadly earnest about a sin that's dogging them and do that's just darkening their days, I, I pray that they would run to the cross. I thank you that the chief way that sin is dealt with and the power of sin is dealt with is, is by understanding the glory and goodness of the shed blood of Jesus. So, Lord, deal with that in our lives. Please. Please, let us not grieve your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, you have sealed us for the day of redemption. So do that in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.